The Thrive Global Podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. If it's not your birthday, like nobody cares what you're wearing. <laughs> Go to the wedding, wear a towel. Nobody cares about you right now. Just put on some clothes and get out of the house. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. Each week, we're having candid conversations with top business leaders, celebrities, athletes, and influencers to explore how they go from surviving to thriving and how you can too. I'm delighted to welcome Eliza Schlesinger to our podcast. You may have caught her hilarious Netflix stand-up special in which she talks about what it's like to be an elder millennial. Her huge fan base is so dedicated that they even make Eliza-inspired swag to wear to her show. What's amazing about Eliza is how honest she is about topics that many of us are afraid to address. Her book, Girl Logic, The Genius and the Absurdity, is a collection of observations on a confident woman's approach to friendships, relationships and being single, which she no longer is. She encourages her audience to stand up for what they believe in, speak about their passions, and be true to themselves. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you. First thing I did was touch your floral arrangement, and of course, they're real. I actually really dislike artificial flower arrangements. You can afford to dislike them. (laughs) No, but I think it's better to have no flower arrangements. I think that's the philosophy of most prisons. (laughs) No, it's either real or none. I like that, though. Real or none. Real or none. Let's not be tacky. Exactly. It doesn't matter. So you said once that comedy is a reflection of your life. Mm -hmm. And I love a line from Nora Ephron that everything is copy. Oh, yeah. So I wonder whether you feel that everything is copy and whether that means that even as you are living something, painful, joyful, whatever, you are thinking how you're going to use it in your comedy. I think a lot of people, and this happens a lot, um, people are like, oh, you can use this in your act, you know? For me, authenticity is very important. Speaking about experience I've had, genuine thoughts, genuine feelings, (laughs) and from my own perspective. You can always poke fun at things, but my new hour is all about getting married, and you talk about a lot about male-female interaction. And I remember a fan once who was a lesbian. I get a lot of lesbian fans because, like, I seem like I could go that way. She was like, you should talk about lesbian dating. And I was like, but I don't, I've never done that. So to speak from, it would be inauthentic. And then if I got it wrong, it would be like, how dare you, you know? So I tread very carefully the age at 36. I feel that I've earned the right to speak with perspective and honesty. And it's kind of bulletproof. I think sometimes, especially with pain, you have to process it. If you go up on stage or you say something and it's too raw, then there's no funny there. You know, time heals all wounds. So the gift you have with time is that it gives you that perspective like my dog passed away. I didn't want to get up there right away and talk about it because I hadn't found the funny yet. And not that it is funny, but now I can talk about it. Talk about it. And through other people's reactions, I've taken some of their reactions and found the humor in that. So everything's a process, but I certainly don't walk around writing everything down. What's funny will stick. Like there's no imperative to like make sure everything gets written down. You want it to be honest. So what's the funny in your dog Blanche, which is very much part of um, the relationship with your fans too because they loved Blanche. They loved her. the funny? The funny is it's really been, and I find this to be such a human thing, the way people try to comfort you when you go through something horrible because they're comforting you 
in a way that they would want to be comforted. I had one fan reach out and she was like, oh, well, Jesus has another dog now. And I was like, the last name is Schlesinger. That doesn't do it for me. Or they're like, she's waiting for you. I'm like, do you know how stressed out that makes me that like I'm late to meet my dead dog? And like, I don't know what she looked like when she died. Some people say, oh, the heavens have another star now. And I'm like, do you not know how stars are made? Because it's gas and it's a chemical reaction. It's not dog souls. So their reactions. Their reactions. And you take it with a grain of salt because I know that they mean well, so I would never be rude back, but I do find it funny because there's nothing that you can say typically where someone's like, you know, one person said, I hope you feel better. And that really hit home for me. And I immediately felt better. You will use it at some point, the way you're using it about your wedding, which I'm very interested in because my oldest daughter is getting married. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I said to her is that I want this to be a stress-free process because I'm obsessed with stress and weddings. (laughs) In fact, at Thrive, you know, on our media platform, we have a whole section about how to create a relatively stress-free wedding. Okay, there may be some stress, but the things that stress people are so trivial. You know how to create a stress-free wedding? Go to someone else's. (laughs) (laughs) Like then there's no problem. You just get drunk. You take an Uber home. My newest Netflix special, it's the fifth one, and it comes out soon, covers. Is it all done? It's all done. I ran that special into the ground. Like, I rehearsed it. Like, we pretty much used the bulk of just one taping, and it's locked. So we should be starting the marketing for that relatively soon. And that special really talks about getting married and just being honest about those stresses. I think that there's this thing where when you're a woman, you're just supposed to be so grateful especially if you're over 30, like that, that you're getting married at all. So grateful. And I'm like, this is fucking hard. I was on tour in Europe like two weeks before my wedding. I didn't have time for all the wedding, all the pedantic planning and all that stuff. And if you don't lean into it, it really comes as a huge shock day of just the gravity of what you're about to do. And that got to me. It's a stressful thing. You, on the day, it got mm-hmm. to you on the day. Like we're talking primal scream in the bridal suite. I cried the entire way down the aisle. I thought I would be stress-free. I'm like, I'm just going to show up. It's been planned. I'm ready to go. And it emotionally hit me like a ton of bricks. The transition, the fact that you would be married, what was it that was so well, shocking? A morbid stand-up's perspective, the doors opened for me to walk down the aisle And I saw all these faces of all the people I've ever loved. And all I remember thinking is, this is the last time I'll have all these people in one room because someone's going to die. That was my thought walking down the aisle. And then just from like a 30,000 foot perspective, is a little bit of like an out-of-body experience. And I'm a very independent person. And I've built my whole career by, you you know, of course you have agents and managers and publicists, but I built it myself. I've done everything myself. And for the first time in my life, I remember being terrified. And I just remember thinking, if I could just get to my husband, then I'll be okay. Like, if I could just get down the aisle and hold his hand, and I'm not that kind of a person. Mm -hmm. And so then even the idea that I was looking forward to being bonded with someone because I I needed him in that moment was such a new one to me because I'm so independent, you know? So it was just a lot to process while in heels (laughs) and a very tight dress. (laughs) That's amazing that it all happened. And in the preparation to the wedding, Mm. it had not happened. I mean, all these thoughts kind of flooded you. Yeah, it all happened at once. And that was just for me. And I think perhaps not leaning into it and not being as participatory is 
why we had that deluge of emotion. My mom helped me plan a lot of it. And she loves, she has impeccable taste and she has been married before. And, you know, once you've been married, you kind of understand all of it. So I let her, and she's my Jewish mother. So I was like, all right, you help. And so I kind of pawned it off on people. And uh, I didn't really wrap my head around it because I was busy working. But there were no second thoughts as you were walking down the aisle. No second thoughts. No, not about him. Second thoughts about like, you know, maybe I should have worn different shoes or something. <laughs> no second thoughts, more just urgency to get down the aisle. It was just overwhelming. And, and then I kept thinking like I was supposed to look like a Jewish Grace Kelly and glide down the aisle. And instead I'm just bawling, <laughs> snot, like the entire wedding. I'm just like fixing my nose because no one looks hot when they cry. And like, that's all I was thinking about was like, I didn't look like Grace Kelly. I just looked like I was crying the whole time. I bet you look hot. I look gorgeous. Gorgeous. But, I bet you do. But the wedding was beautiful and all that stress happens. And then you look back and you're like, I wish, knowing what I know now, I wish I could have done it differently. So your advice to brides uh, before they are brides, you know, mm -hmm. the whole preparation is to process their emotions before the moment? The best you can. And the that's tough to can. tell women. I think a lot of girls do lean into it. A lot of girls, the planning and they've got the albums and they really get into it. But I think sometimes when you think you're above it, and I think a lot of busy women, a lot of alpha women feel this way. Yes. Then details get left out. But you have to remember your guests are there. Like people are spending money and coming in To be with you. To be with you. And so be as emotionally present as you can, but also know that truly none of it matters. What matters is that you're going to be bound to this person that you love. Totally. And I got married also at 36. Oh. And I totally get what you're saying. You know, the dramatic shift in the life of a woman who's been independent yeah. and earning her own living and everything. And then for me, what changed is, I had my first child at 38, oh. and I was totally prepared for that. I was like, You're like, this I can do. This I can do. I can have all the classes. I yeah. know exactly how I want this birth to go, et cetera, et cetera. And did it go as planned? Well, I lost my first child that was stillborn. Oof. But the live births, the two of them, went relatively as planned. So uh, do you want to have kids? We're thinking about it. It's so funny because I think a lot of women get very offended at the child conversation. Yes. But I don't see why. It's like if you can say no. Right. I think a lot of people have families that pressure them. And I think a lot of girls want to have kids and they either can't physically or they don't have the partner yet and they know that clock is ticking. So when people bring up the question, I think yes. it feels like even more pressure. No one's ever asked me about it my whole life. My parents knew better than that. You know, it's always about... Then it takes job. me. And then Ariana Huffington. To ask you. I was like, are you going to have kids? <laughs> so for the first time in my life, it's a conversation. Yes. Husband and I talked about it the other night. And he's like, whatever you want to do, obviously. And I'm like, well, of course, whatever I want to do. <laughs> and so it's a conversation and it's, uh, but it doesn't burn in me like it does for some women, which is okay. But I also don't hate kids. You know, I think sometimes we like to put women in either, you're either mother earth or you're this like cold Cruella DeVille and it's like or just been super busy haven't thought about it I have a lot of friends that had kids and it's very like low-key like the kid is cool it's cool I also don't look forward to the competitive mommying that but think of the comedy potential 
people, fans now are like, can't wait for your next special when you have that kid. I'm like, it's the only reason I'm having a kid. I better get an Emmy. <laughs> so it'll be what it'll be. And I guess that's that in terms of the kid thing. Yeah. But at least even just opening up the conversation in a comedic way, because sure. I totally agree with you. It's become, especially now with so many women having to go through IVF and the whole fertility conversation, it's something which is so present mm -hmm. and there isn't enough comedy around it that for me, comedy is yeah. just the fastest way to take the stress out of the most stressful Because you're the one listening, but for the ones writing it. <laughs> yes, for the ones writing it. But once you've written it. Yes. It takes the stress out of it. It normalizes it. And more importantly, if I ever did have a child, just like anything else in my life, I would look forward to letting other women know your emotions and your feelings are okay. It's okay to be angry about your wedding day. It's okay to be stressed. These things are okay and normal. And we oftentimes vilify women for having very normal thoughts that we're all having. But how dare she say that? How dare she say the thing that we're all thinking? I enjoy the authenticity of it. And I enjoy standing up and being like, no, these are real thoughts. Because if you're laughing at it, that means you've thought this too. Right. And, and also okay. just accepting whatever emotions we have is okay. the fastest way not to kind of cling to them. And even if, you know, we vilify women for having emotions. Oh, they're emotional. Oh, she's to this. Oh, she's opinionated. Oh, she's to that. And it's like, We don't do these things about men, but that's such a trite argument, the whole male-female comparison thing. We're so hard on women as women for doing the exact same things that we do. And I think if we just chilled out and just allowed other women to go through those emotions, to be hysterical, life would be a lot easier if we weren't obsessed with policing one another. But I think part of it is because we police ourselves. Yeah. I grew up as an incredibly self-judgmental person. In mm -hmm. fact, I gave that voice in my head a name. I call it the obnoxious roommate living in my head, <laughs> you know, that doubts me and right. judges me. And if I make a mistake, you know, ruminates over it for 48 hours. So I just feel as I lightened up on myself, then you don't judge as much. Do you think that comes with age? Well, it definitely comes with age. I think it's absolutely the best thing about aging. Mm -hmm. But also, I've done a lot of work on. I mean, I really wanted to silence that voice. You never silence it completely, but put it in its place. No, that voice is not me. And then it's amazing how almost automatic it is mm -hmm. that you become much more accepting of everyone else. Going back to the thing I was saying about weddings, like, it's because nobody actually cares. I can't believe I'm using the sentence. I read about this extensively in my book, Girl Logic. But at the end of the day, as women, we're always taking in all of society's expectations. All of these societal expectations from the way you regulate your body to your thoughts, to, to your, the way you're dressed, to your education, to your work, and you're processing it minute to minute. How should I act? Because the way other people perceive you will have detrimental effects on your life when you're a woman. So we're always taking this into account. But where you can give yourself a break is realize you're going to a party, nobody cares. Nobody cares what shoes you're wearing. And you won't care once you've left the house. My best friend and I have this thing since we were kids, we're like, nobody cares. If it's not your birthday, like nobody cares what you're wearing. <laughs> Go to the wedding, wear a towel. Nobody cares about you right now. Just put on some clothes and get out of the house. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. So I have strong views 
on the subject. I've started a movement, I hope you're going to join, called Hashtag Repeats, which is about women buying something they like and then wearing the hell out of it. Yeah. Because one of our problems is we think, I love this dress, but I wore it at the last wedding or I wore it at the last Thanksgiving or whatever. And they, and we think people remember exactly what we wore. They have a list and we can't wear the same thing. Because some women do. And some those women mean do, women are who working. Cares? Who cares? Because they're tacky. Yeah. And I actually celebrated. I mean, I buy a dress I love. I wear the hell out of it. And I Instagram myself wearing the hell out of it, you know, mm-hmm. side by side at supposedly big occasions. I do that with jewelry. I am giving my earlobes a break today, but I have a pair of diamond earrings. I wear them to everything because they're diamonds. What's better? I have one gold bracelet that was like $50. I wear it to everything because it doesn't actually matter. I'm not a jewelry model. Mm -hmm. I'm not at the Met Gala yet. So just throw it on and wear your pretty face and all this over-accessorizing. If you love it, great, but killing yourself to get to this certain look. And when it comes to to the clothes, the wealthier you are, the less important those things can be. I think it's when you get to people that want to project an image. We live in a society, not just pop culture wise, but as it's become part of our American fabric, projecting this image mm-hmm. of wealth. So of course a wealthy person would only wear something once. Meanwhile, Susie Orman wears the same earrings every day. And Kate Middleton wears the right. same dress multiple times. And I love Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, that's Wearing that uh, white Alexander McQueen dress. I. Uh, counterpoint, don't like anything that I'm wearing now. I wore a normal outfit because I was like, I'm going to Ariana Huffington's house. I have to dress like a person. And I didn't want to walk in wearing my New Balance shorts and like a punk rock sweatshirt. <laughs> oh no, you look amazing. Thank but you. But I bet like you would look amazing in your shorts. So I please think so. send us a picture so we can post <laughs> okay. it when we are the podcast. Okay. My other campaign is about women feeling that if they don't wear really high stiletto shoes, mm. they are not somehow fully dressed. So what do you think? Are you in that camp? Oh, I'm not in that camp at all. In one of my earlier specials, I talked about the reason you're wearing heels is because then it's hard to run away from a rapist. And so that's what society wants you wearing (laughs) that for. The reason we wear heels is so your butt sways when you walk. It's appealing to the male gaze. Women have come now to find it very empowering because, you know, you're high up and you stand up straighter when you're in heels. But the truth is they're not good for you. They are almost always uncomfortable. It's almost like the more expensive, the more uncomfortable. And it's tough to extrapolate your feeling from the expectation because I think they're so enmeshed. So I didn't grow up in a world where women don't wear heels. So it's really hard to conceive of a world where you wouldn't wear heels on a red carpet. So I think it always comes down to let the woman wear what she wants. Yes. And let it be. Absolutely. And if she wants to wear high heels, great. But also recognizing that it takes a mind share to stand on them for a long time. I mean, you see women swaying, oh holding God. onto furniture. Unable to walk. You can't have any carbs because you're in a tight dress and you're cantilevered off toothpicks. I just did a, this corporate event in Las Vegas and I cobbled together like a nice outfit. For everything that I have access to, I own like three nice tops. It's just not my thing. And I wore this pair of high heels that I think I'd been gifted from a show that I had. So they weren't broken in. And I was embarrassed, but I'm up on this giant stage hosting this for several hours. And I had to step off to wrap my feet like a gymnast because I was unable to walk. And I was only on my feet for like three hours. So there's expectation. I think as women, we're always trying to find that common ground between societal expectations and what we actually expect from ourselves. 
So you've said that as a comedian, you have a set of morals. What are these morals? Well, I think we all have morals. We've so whitewashed comedy now, and there's this expectation on comedians. It's really changed in the last couple of years to always say the right thing, the politically correct thing, the thing that's going to make everyone laugh. Every time you open your mouth, you got a 50% chance of everyone hating you. Half the time, you know? You can always only come back to your own moral compass. If you are the kind of girl that makes vagina jokes, then that's your truth. And if you're the kind of guy that wants to tell frat boy jokes, like if this is the way that you're doing it, they may not be jokes that I tell, but we always get mad at comics for expressing themselves and for not doing it perfectly in that moment. And we are a culture that lives media snippet to snippet, meaning you see one clip of me and I said something that bothered you on that day. Oh, well, she must be garbage. I hate her. Completely throwing out any work, anything else you've ever done. We're not a society of context. We read headlines, clickbait, things like that. So we don't contextualize things and we're very quick to vilify people. So all you can do at the end of the day is know what you will and won't talk about, what's funny and what's not funny to you. So I think it's just the way that society is programmed. So all at the end of the day, if you want to put your head down and rest well, all you can do is know that you said what you felt was right for you and you have no regrets. But do you have like a list of no's? It's not no, but it's more just because anything can be funny. It's just things that I don't laugh at. Not that they come up a lot. Like I don't laugh at Holocaust jokes. I don't really laugh at racist jokes. You can make observations about different races and that's funny. And I think people don't know the difference between, to put it like as a colloquialism, like breaking balls and hate speech. Mm -hmm. One comes from love because you've earned a familiarity and one is just spewing vitriol. Does that make sense? Right, absolutely. So I don't, that's the context. It's the context and it's who's delivering it. There are jokes Bill Maher can say that I can't say. There are jokes that Amy Schumer could say that another girl couldn't say, another guy couldn't say. There are jokes that Chris Rock can make that I can make. You know, it, it depends on what you've earned with your audience. I don't go into every set. Like, these are things I don't talk about. Yes. I don't put down women. You can make fun, and that's because I am one, but there's laughing at and laughing with. Mm -hmm. And even when you have the best of intentions, you know, I wrote this joke about some girl leaving a bar with a guy, and she says to him, like, I'll go home with you, but can we wash my hump before we make love? And I remember picking a hump because nobody has a hump. It wasn't something racial or specifically sexual or... It wasn't something that girls have. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm in a wheelchair and that's hilarious, you know? And some woman wrote to me, she was like, my son has a hump. And I'm like, well, then I guess I can't say anything. And what I wrote back to her was, the joke wasn't written about your son and you laughed at all the other jokes in the special. And those were probably at someone else's expense. Mm -hmm. and that's why we're all getting bogged down in this society because, oh, you said one thing once, you must be the worst person ever. And that is uh, such an incredible way to divide us and create this culture of negativity. And what do you think we can do or what can you do in your life not to be so affected by things that happen that we consider extremely unfair? It can be somebody doing something at work that's yeah. upsetting and unfair or somebody saying something that's hurtful. What do you do so that it doesn't take you over? I'd be lying if I said those things don't take over. I think we all have those moments, those days where you have a bad thing happen. It could be as small as a comment. And in that moment, you were vulnerable and then you begin to attach it to other things. I love a pity party. I think that it's something that everybody goes through. 
Think about the astronomical price women throughout history have paid for trying to make even smaller steps, whether it's voting suffragettes, whether it's civil rights, whether it's abortion rights, whether it's the right to be paid more, to have a job. I get goosebumps thinking about it. People and women that have lost their lives when they stood up for a cause that was important, but like that's the price you pay for being someone that has something to say. It will never come easy. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. I also find that it's easy for me to have perspective when I'm not exhausted. Okay. So when do you have perspective? <laughs> I make a point of not being exhausted because I collapsed from exhaustion yeah. and hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone. So that's a high priority for me. Oh my God. But what's your relationship with exhaustion? How do you deal with the exhaustion of travel, jet lag, everything that goes with it? Well, I will say again, just tying it back into the perspective thing. When I do a show, when I do, what did we do uh, last week? I think I did seven shows in three days and I sign up for it. It's not like my agent's like, you better get out there and make that money. <laughs> and then I do these meet and greets after where sometimes you're meeting over a hundred people. I try to give each person a moment because you paid for this. Yeah. I'm not so famous where it's just like, bring them in, don't touch me, smile, here's your shirt. I really respect the time and effort that people put in. And the number one comment I get offhanded when I take pictures is people say, all right, do a fake smile, so sorry. Like they feel bad. They think that, or they're like, you must be so tired of smiling. They think that I'm doing this against my will or that I'm not making money at it or that I don't treasure these interactions with these fans who have built my career. If you're going to be a performer, you perform. And that performance consists of the second I walk into that venue until I get in the car to leave. So that is, I don't show up before the show. You can't meet me before I do the show and I meet you and I want to be present. And the adrenaline kicks in and you can go be tired on your own time. Mm -hmm. But I get to do the best job in the world. And people not only pay for that, but they bring me gifts. They bring me their own art that mine inspired. And on a cosmic, like spiritual level, that feeds your soul. I've had the flu and I had to fly to Qatar to do a show in the Middle East. And it's like, yeah, you could complain about that. But like, you know what's worse? Getting shot at every day. What's harder is being in the military. And it's like, if you can't get it together for these men and women for an hour, are you worth your salt? What are we doing here? So the exhaustion, I really, as I've gotten older, I try to sleep more. How many hours? I know like Martha Stewart gets like four hours of sleep. I need 10 hours of sleep <laughs> to function. Like I'm a house cat. I need a lot of sleep and I take it where I can get it. I take melatonin every night of my life and have since I started this career. Because when you're a comic, you just take your sleep where you can find it. I always fly first class that I pay for myself because I'd rather have a nice five-hour rest than be cramped. I put my money toward things like that, noise-canceling headphones, a massage. I have like crazy neck pain. I get off stage and I feel like I got hit by a truck. And now I have to take into account stretching. So there's all these physical things as you get older that you could ignore before. Sleep is really huge. And acknowledging you need to just do nothing. Mm -hmm. I think very wealthy people have like crazy hobbies like equestrian gymnastics. Sometimes I will just stare out at nothing. I bought a house with a view so I could stare at the view because I don't even turn the TV on. 
Well, I totally agree with that. And I think it's important for people to understand the science. Yeah. Because, in fact, Martha Stewart can sleep for four hours and feel okay because she has a genetic mutation problem. Right. There is about one and a half percent of the population that doesn't need right. the sleep that the majority of the population needs. Oh, did you just ask why we ignore scientific data? I don't know. Check the world on fire outside, but apparently climate crisis. But even when it comes to sleep, it is so kind of central to how we show up in our lives. And the vast majority of people need seven to nine hours. So you say you need 10, you actually need nine. But if you got it regularly, but because there are probably many nights when you don't, you also are catching up. But I am now kind of, obsessed with getting the sleep I need, which in my case is eight hours, Mm -hmm. because then I just feel so much happier. I have so much more joy in anything I do. So much more productive too. So much more productive, more creative, but also when bad things happen and bad things happen every day, I'm much less reactive. You're not irritable. Things are less heightened when you're calm because you're not tired. I think also as women, I think it was The New Yorker. I just really want people to know that I read The New Yorker. No, I think there was a New Yorker cartoon and it was like there was two people standing over a headstone. And I think the headstone, the epitaph was like, you know, here lies Susan. She worked so hard. Just the idea that as women, and a lot of people have written about this. This isn't my original idea. This is our badge of honor showing how exhausted we are. Oh, she fell asleep at her desk. Oh, she's working so hard. And that's how we're showing our worth. Like, oh, I'm so exhausted. But the truth is, nobody cares. So taking that time for myself, and sometimes it's a full day, and not rushing a creative process. I've also found I work so fast. If I email someone that I owe like an outline to or rewrites to for a script, and I say, can I get this to you in two weeks? not this week. They're like, yeah, that was a lot quicker than I thought you would. People's expectations are very low. And if you're a high productivity kind of person, you'll be surprised the birth you're given in terms of turning things around when you need to take a minute and people allow that. And they're like, oh, great. I'm so glad you're taking a day to yourself. So, you know, at Thrive, we kind of have institutionalized that. Mm -hmm. We say that there's no interesting job that doesn't sometimes include, you know, powering through, maybe pulling an all-nighter, right. doing something that is hard. But then we call it take thrive time. Take thrive time to not yes. thrive. Take thrive time, like what you said, take a day and look out and stare at the view or do nothing. Replenish and recharge uh-huh. yourself. And it's interesting with athletes now, recovery is part of training. Active recovery as yes. well. Yes. So that's what you're really talking about. Giving ourselves and each other permission to do that means that you'll probably finish what you owe someone, you know, the next script or whatever, much faster. Much faster, less typos, which is like still a problem for me. But even if you think about like when you medically, you know, if you're sick, you always feel better the next morning. Things are always better in the morning under the light of the sun. We put on eye cream because it moisturizes you overnight. Flowers bloom overnight, things like that. That sleep is spiritually important. Things happen. Your body repairs itself. How many times have you woken up like something was, you had a zit and it's better in the morning. You do a face mask, it's better in the morning. Hair, muck, whatever. It's restorative and that is downtime. I happen to make my living in those off hours. So it's a major adjustment. I can't believe I married someone who also has weird hours because he's a chef. Does he cook at home? Uh, My husband cooks for me. You know, women always get so excited. They're like, does he cook for you? Does he make you snacks? He does. And that is why these jeans are the largest size jeans I've ever bought. <laughs> um, 
he cooks for me and he loves cooking. We kind of have this role reversal. He's more of a caretaker and I'm whatever I am. When I met him, I was like, I get out of work at one in the morning sometimes. That's when I have to go eat dinner, which is not the best idea, but I'm ravenous. I always feel like when I read advice, it's always like the advice applies to everyone but comedians because it is such an odd job and you can have other jobs during the day. Like I'll do a full day in a writer's room, then do an outline for another project, then take a meeting, then go do a set or a show. You're wearing all these different hats. And so I get home and we eat together. No TV. We have no TV in the bedroom. And it's just about like decompressing Mm -hmm. as hardcore as you can. And in this decompressing hours, how do you handle your phone? I don't want to tell people. I feel like I was doing so well and people are going to be like, oh no, she's garbage. (laughs) It's an addiction and I don't have an addictive personality. I will sometimes plug it in in another room and just be like, I can't. Sometimes I try to not bring it to dinner. Someone should have a phone for safety's sake and to call an Uber. But if he brings his, I leave mine. I think also... Sometimes you just hit a critical mass with the amount of information you're taking in. We've all gotten to that place and it happens around like seven o'clock at night where there's nothing left to look at on the internet. Like all the news is done for the day other than like a natural disaster happening. All the stories have been read. All the scrolls have been scrolled and you're just looking at nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'm embarrassed. I'll be speaking to him and I'm just scrolling. I'm like, oh, look, regional gymnastics championships. Look what you did with that cake icing. Like, what am I doing? And you're just taking in information. I think the discover button on Instagram is like my greatest source of insecurity. And so it's a real effort day to day to remind myself, like, don't look at your phone. If I'm in the car with my assistant, just look out the window. I have a non-traditional job, so I can't just be like, I'm not answering texts right now. But also the urgency to write back to people. I've stopped writing back an emoji or like, ha ha. I don't want to be a jerk to people and I always want to respond, but the amount of just pedantic interaction on a day-to-day basis, you feel better when you're not constantly just putting out garbage. And what about social media? Some people live their lives online. Of course, I'm a performer, so I like attention, but I'm very specific about what I post. I always want it to be funny. I never want it to just be like, sounds bad, like self-masturbatory sort of content. Like, look at me just hanging out. So if I post something and for a second, I'm like, I don't know if I like that. I always erase it. I try to be specific with it. I want them to come to my page and be happy they did Mm -hmm. and enjoy things that I want to convey versus just constant. Look at me. So I believe in uh, changing addictive behavior and we all have it. Trust me. You know, we all are addicted to our phones and what technology has brought into our lives. I believe in micro steps. Okay. And uh, so my favorite micro step in dealing with phone addiction is picking a time at the end of your day, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, 2 in the morning or 10 p.m., whatever the end of your day is, and you mark that end. The end. The end. Yeah. I finished my show at 1 o'clock. I had dinner with my husband. At 3 a.m. Whatever. Yeah. I had sex. Whatever. Right. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. The end is marked by turning off your phone, I hope before sex, and charging it and charging it outside your bedroom. That's a great idea. What do you think? How likely are you to do it? 100%. I'm going to make it very easy. I'm going to give you a little gift when you leave. Oh my God, thank you. Which is, uh, we created this little charging station that looks like a phone bed and it has a little blankie. 
Oh it can charge 10 phones oh. and you put it outside your bedroom. Okay. And you put your phone under the blanket, you tuck it in, you say good night, and you reconnect in the morning and your phone is fully charged and you're fully charged. Question. If I'm tucking my phone in, how do I film myself tucking my phone in so people can see me tucking my oh, phone in? Oh, um, your husband. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Because actually, you posting a picture will help all the people who admire you kind of feel that they have permission to do mm-hmm. something. You know, they don't have to have a phone bed. They can go I charge it in their kitchen or their bathroom. And it comes in light wood and mahogany. I also, part of me is nervous that like this is an intervention and like this whole thing at your house has been orchestrated because like Eliza has a phone addiction. Oh, I believe we all have a phone addiction. So it's not just Eliza. It's not just me. When I see in other people, I see how ugly it is. Like I have one friend who will play a game while I'm talking to them. And I'm not that like, and then I can look down. I'm like, well, I'm not that bad. I have no problem charging it outside. Take that yeah. <laughs> giant micro step uh, for you, which is going to be a giant leap for mankind and womankind. I think so. Because so many people admire you and look up to you, and we got to change it. It's going to emerge the data in like 30 years. Like we've all got eyeball cancer or something. Like something well, awful is going to happen. We already know, you know, that the impact it has on mental health problems, the increase in depression and anxiety. There are lots of good things about Technology, you met your husband on a dating app. It's true. So there are a lot of good things. Some could say, yeah. Yeah. So I just want to end with something that you mentioned a few times. You mentioned the word spiritual a few times. Oh, okay. So we'd love to know what does that mean to you? Were you brought up in a Jewish tradition? Yes, but just very reformed. Like you hit all the marks. Like I had a bat mitzvah, had a confirmation took an Israel trip when I was like 16, not with any sort of organization. You know, we went to high holiday services, like any good watered down Jew. You go to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And I tried to do that out here in LA. And sometimes you can't, sometimes you're on the road. So I do those things. And if you ask me my religion, I would say Jewish. And I think people think being Jewish is not the negation of believing in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with that. But religion doesn't rule my life. Culturally, Judaism has more of an impact. But in terms of spirituality, you know, everybody always loves to have the God conversation. And I don't understand how people don't realize that God is everything. Mm -hmm. It's not a dude. It doesn't have to be a religious thing. It can be secular. It's just this idea that there is a connection there. And at your lowest point, you know, you can tap into it or you can, spirituality can be just admiring the flowers. It's that calm moment where you just feel kind of grounded. And when you can feel other people's spirit and when you can feel the energy, if you want to get like scientific about it, a connection, you meet someone, you're like, I felt a connection. That's something that we're so lucky to be able to tap into because we're all so busy. We're all on our phones. We're running around. We're all so self-serving. And when you have these moments where you actually connect with a person and you feel that energy between you, it's like that's part of what's so great about being alive is these moments where you realize you're not totally alone because someone else is like on your same vibration. I love that. And for me, it's also that our identity is beyond, like, you're a successful comedian. I'm uh, the founder of Thrive Global. You know, it's, yeah, that's what we do. But it doesn't fully define us. It doesn't fully define us. I think it's hard when you are a driven person. Your work is your life. Your work is your baby, you know. And these are the things that we use to identify ourselves. But if we were all on a desert island, what would you be worth? How are you impacting people on a daily basis? Are you the most successful actor ever? 
are you a dick? <laughs> do people like you? Do they fear you? I can't say that I'm always great at it. I can't say that I don't ever come out swinging and that I don't always have the best approach. But I know at the end of the day, like the intention is always to leave people better than you found them. I love what you said once about self-improvement. Mm. Because for me, the positive side of self-improvement is acknowledging we're all a work in progress. Nobody's doing this thing perfectly. Mm -hmm. But there is something about progressing and learning and getting better. You said that just because you took on Oprah and Deepak's 21-day meditation experience and only got through day three doesn't mean you failed. It means you are three days closer to being the person you wanted to be. Yeah, I said that. I think Yoda said, there is no try, only do. What is it? I don't know. The, I'm glad I don't know the exact quote. But we are trying. Everything is trying. If you believe in the idea that there is no perfection, like everyone has that professor that won't give out an A+, which is like a dick move. Like, just give out the A+. Plus. <laughs> but not that I was going to get it. But all you can do is try. And we so get angry at other people when they're trying and not trying hard enough in our eyes. And I do believe a lot of times people aren't trying, but all you can do is try to make yourself better, to make other people better. Everybody's version of perfection is different. I always say like, put your head down at the end of the day and know that like you gave it your all and you really did it on your terms. When I get a show and it fails because I took a bunch of notes that were bad and I'm like, I could have done that differently. And when I have a show that fails, but I did it my way, at least I can go out saying I did it my way. I left it all on the court. I came to play. So that's the best you can do. So have you picked up meditation again um, after the three-day experiment? Well, that was more for other people. My husband meditates. Uh, he's good at that. And he comes from a family that that's very much their world. And I mean, that's a whole other thing that, that I admire very deeply. It's so funny. Having nothing to do with coming here, I was up early this morning and I was like, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to have like a moment. And I had the warrior of light, Sharon Stone. That's so random gave me more of like the book. And she was like, it's a toilet read. Just read a sentence about, you know. So I took it out onto the balcony this morning. And I was like, I'm just going to read a couple, a couple passages. And then I sat down for 10 seconds. I was like, oh, the light's in my eyes. So I went to go get sunglasses. I sat down, I'm like, oh, it's on my skin. Then I had to get a hat. And by the time I sat down and read a page, I was like, it's too hot. <laughs> I had to go back inside. And then my assistant came with the housekeeper and I was like, well, fuck it, there goes that. But I did make the effort <laughs> and maybe tomorrow I'll actually get through like two pages mm. and I'll Great. sit inside. I love this micro step. What's smaller than a micro step? Well, actually, we call our micro steps too small to fail. Oh my God. So basically as small as possible, just say, I'm going to meditate for one minute. One like, minute. What's the bare minimum? One minute. One minute. And actually there's science behind it, mm -hmm. which is that it takes under 60 seconds to course correct from stress, to reconnect with that stillness or calm that you're talking about. It's mm. not a big thing because it's available to us. But most of the time we don't take that one minute. I don't know if you ever had nerves before you went on stage or like a normal person. <laughs> but if you did, I mean, one of the things I will do sometimes is just breathe consciously. You know, take like four breaths in Does help. and a longer exhale because it's in the exhalation mm -hmm. that we actually reduce stress. But the micro step is waking up in the morning. Most people go to their phone before they're fully awake, before yes. their feet are on the ground. And you don't know what you're going to get. And by the way, you've missed nothing. You missed nothing. Here's what you missed. You missed a text from my mom telling me that I should refinance my mortgage. 
you missed a text from someone from two days ago who forgot to write you back <laughs> and like something horrible that the president did. Like you can digest that later. Oh, I have ended all notifications that are not from people I know. Oof. I don't want to know what the president tweeted the moment he tweets it because, hey, I'm going to find out soon enough. I don't even have Twitter on my phone. And that was a huge step for me. Took it off my phone. Important news will find you and you can go read a and paper. you can go find it whenever you're ready at your own time. All these things are micro steps, like waking up and taking one minute to breathe or remember mm -hmm. what you're grateful for or set your intention for the day, whatever you want to do. One yeah. minute, 60 seconds before you go to your phone is a micro step. It's a micro step. If somebody says, I don't have a minute, then they don't have a life. And I'm sorry for them because one you got a minute, minute, you got a minute. I will say this morning, because I've, I've been cognizant of that. I don't have the phone in a bed, but just trying to like not look at the phone first thing. And I woke up and I walked to the bathroom and I had these lilies on my nightstand and four of them bloomed overnight. And it was just cool, like in a nerdy science moment to be like, that's so cool. They were closed last night and they're open. And I just kind of stared at them. And then I immediately picked up the phone and texted my husband like the lily. And I sent him a picture of it. But it was just cool to like connect with the flowers. Yes, oh, well, that was your moment. It was my moment. And I carry it with me. Yeah, and you carry it with you for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for sharing all these beautiful moments with us. Thank you for thank having you. me. Can I touch your flowers again? Yes, and also uh, I'm going to give you these flowers to take them home. Just water them and give them love. Okay, I can do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. We hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. Be sure to follow the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at thriveglobal.com or reach out on social media using the hashtag ThrivePodcast. Tell us who you'd like to hear from and what your favorite micro steps are. Until next time, be well and thrive. This podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Ariana Huffington. Thrive Global is produced by Sandy Smolens and mixed by Matt Noble at Audiation Studios in Bronxville, New York. Thank you to Lindsay Benoit O'Connell for booking and wrangling our wonderful guests and for providing editorial oversight. Derek Clement is our engineer, and special thanks to Nikki Etor and Kari Lieberman. See you next week. Audiation.